Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Okay, all right, all right. I appreciate uh, Kevin's work with, uh, he's, like you said last night, the -the behind-the-scenes guy. I'm putting that basketball league together, Dan Royal and Dwight Young on the uh, actual running the program and all the coaches. It was great. It was great last night. See everybody here. It was fun. And uh, just want to thank all of you for being a part of that. And thanks, Kevin, for your work on that. It's a really important part of our ministry. Uh, where's Pastor Gary? Is he here today? Oh, okay. Uh, so I've been asked several times today if I'm going to stand on my head this morning uh, to <laughs> preach, preach my sermon. And uh, the answer is no, I'm not planning on that. And, uh, you know, Gary's trying to raise the bar, what we can do up here to uh, entertain you. And uh, I'm not going to stand on my head. I talked to the two guys who held him up this morning, uh, Matt and Michael, and uh, told me they dropped him, I guess, or, or something like that. Uh, but they said it was Gary's fault because he really wasn't up to the task. He was turning blue. And uh, so, no, I'm not going to stand on my head. But I, I thought about maybe letting Gary know anytime he wants uh, we'd take a one-on-one game in the court. I'll spot you two points, and I'd even set a date, but I know you won't show up because uh, <laughs> he knows the old man would bury him, so he wouldn't, he wouldn't even see a rebound. So if you're up to it, though, Gary, we'll, we'll schedule that, and uh, we'll do that. So no, I'm going to stand on my feet today and preach the old, the old style today. <clears throat> so if I ask you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, as we continue our study from the Gospel of Mark. Jordan, good to see you today. Nice to have you here and your wife. And uh, uh, anybody else? We got to, oh, Ian Oberg's up visiting. And uh, just nice to have all of you here. And when you come to visit, uh, good to see everybody. And um, thank you all for coming today. There are many places you could be today. I know that. I know in this, this world today, there are so many things that are drawing our attention and how it's changed just in my lifetime on Sundays. And uh, it's good you're here today. Again, I want to thank you, parents and grandparents, for bringing your children to us. Uh, We really love working with your kids and um, put a lot into that. And uh, we want to thank you for that. And you remember to pray for our children and our youth ministry uh, as we continue at the church here. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love for us and your kindness and your graciousness. And Father, we pray as we uh, open your word this morning, our hearts will be open to you. And uh, we would look into your word and, and just consider it and give thought to it today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in, in our Sunday school classes throughout our church, uh, early childhood through adults, we're studying the Gospel of Mark. And each week you have one of the, um, uh, the flyers that you have the questions on. I have mine down here that you can take home and discuss and uh, talk with your family about. And so as we preach in the morning message, we try to bring some things um, that maybe are connected with that, and it's always a little difficult to know exactly what everybody's covering in class because we're all looking at the same thing, and I gave them a list of some things I'm going to bring in the morning service. So some of this will be review, but I want to focus on a couple important things from this account today of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. The transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins in chapter 9, but if you have a newer translation, you may notice that if your Bible is in paragraph-style form, uh, at least in the NIV, uh, you'll notice that uh, verse 1 is sort of connected with 
the previous section, verse 34 and following in chapter 8. And I think that's an important thing to remember as Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. And as he, as he concludes that, and the, and the conclusion is, if anyone is ashamed of me, in verse 38, of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he's previously said, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. If whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever wants to lose it will gain it for the gospel's sake. So it's in that context, it's in that context that we come to chapter 9 in our Bible, but it's in the same context, and he said to them, so this is the same conversation, okay? And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now he has just told them, about his coming in power at the end of chapter 8 with his Father's glory and the holy angels. Okay, he's just told them that. Then he says, in fact, I tell you, some will not die before you see this. You will see the, the, the kingdom of God and you will see it come with power. And so that's the context of what we know in our Bible as the story of the transfiguration. So let's read this. After six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say they were, because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. You know, uh, you grow up in church and Sunday school, you have uh, pictures that, you know, the, the stories of Jesus. You know, it's interesting how often Jesus is dressed in white. You ever notice that? And in the movies Hollywood puts out and so on, that Jesus always has a white garment on. Um, actually, Jesus probably didn't wear a white garment, you know, because he lived in the Middle East and he wore clothes like everybody else in Palestine wore. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests he went around in a white robe. Uh, the rabbis certainly didn't walk around in white robes. But it's this particular case, in this particular story, obviously, Jesus appears in white. Jesus tells them, you're going to, some are going to see the kingdom of God you didn't, before, before you die. And it's in that context. It was after six days. And you might notice, if, if, and if you think of the, the connections here to the Old Testament, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him. In the Old Testament, and, and we're going to see Moses and Elijah appear. There's a, in the Old Testament, when, when, when Moses and Joshua go up the mountain, there's a, there's a period of six days 
that is significant in that story. And there are several things in this account that are significant with these Old Testament stories. And after six days, they go up this mountain. And when it says in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured here is the word metamorphosis. You're probably familiar with that word. He was changed. It was him, but it was different. It wasn't like they didn't recognize him. They recognized him. But something about him just radically changed right in front of their eyes. Franz Kafka years ago wrote that book, The Metamorphosis. That was a literary, um, a well-known uh, work. This change. And there was this change in Jesus right before their eyes. And it, and it describes the change. It says his clothes became dazzling white. And it's interesting. The word for white here in the Greek, uh, in the Latin, you know, is lux. And we get light from. You know, our word light, the lux, to, to lukos here in the Greek is this, is this word for something that is, is pure white. Um, and, and it says in the original language here, it, it tells us that it was so white that, that no launderer could launder it. No one could bleach it this white. It wouldn't be possible to put bleach on something and make it this white. It was beyond a human whiteness, if you will, that we could accomplish. He was changed before them in his, in his clothes. Um, it doesn't say his skin and his face, but it does say all of a sudden his garments were like dazzling white. I mean, it's sort of like grasping for words here to describe how white this was. It was overwhelming whiteness about his appearance. It was dazzling. That's really a good word. It was, it was dazzling before their eyes. And this could never be accomplished. And all of a sudden, here is Moses and Elijah with him, and they're talking. Now, you can imagine... Peter, James, and John, the three inner core of the disciples. There's 12 disciples, but there are three who are kind of the inner core, and you will find them with Jesus on some very significant events. And he chose these three to come with him up this mountain, mountain of Tabor, the, 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 historically we think it was, according to church history. It goes up the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, you go to Israel, you can, you can visit this, this site where, where apparently maybe it happened. And, and you go up this mountain, and, and here, is, here, here is these two characters from the Old Testament that every Jew would have been, would have been so awed with. It would, be like, it would be like for us as Christians if, if all of a sudden the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were standing here talking with someone. I mean, it would just be like, you know, these are sort of the two apostles we hear so much about, or the Apostle John, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah represented two epical eras in Israel's history. Moses, of course, is connected with the Exodus and the Passover. And they, to, to, the Jews, to the Jewish faith, the, the Exodus is what Easter is to us as Christians. It's the epical story of their freedom, their liberation from Egypt, and the, and the mighty, powerful works of God that took place to, to, bring him, to bring this nation out of slavery after 400 years and, and take them to the promised land, the new land, of the land of Israel, eventually the land of Israel. And Moses is connected with all those miracles and signs and wonders that took place. Elijah is connected with that time in Israel's history. A year ago, we did a series on Elijah and Elisha. And as you look at the Old Testament, there are, there are two times where there's like an explosion of miracles. And the miracles are there to get their attention and say, God is at work. Something is happening here. You know, those type of miracles are not an everyday occurrence in the Old Testament. But with Elijah and then Elisha, you have all these miracles and signs and wonders. It was a critical time in Israel's history 
where it was, where it was time to either follow God and, and do what he said, or they were going to go into exile eventually. And here you have this, other, this new critical time in Israel's history. Here is the Messiah. Here is the promised one. And he's talking to Moses and Elijah and what they represent. It's also interesting that if you think about it, uh, both Moses and Elijah had mountain experiences like this where they encountered God. If you go back for a moment, you can keep your hand in Mark. If you look back at, at, in the book of Exodus, you go back to the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, and you go to the book of Exodus, and in chapter 34 of, of Exodus, and in verse Exodus 35, and we have the account where God had told, where Moses Moses had broken the first set of laws after his anger at his people and their sin. Then he gets the second set of tablets. And in chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words which were on the first ones. Be ready in the morning and come up to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to, to Mount Sinai. In verse 5, the Lord came down in the cloud, and the Lord stood there with him, the, the Lord God stood there with Moses in the cloud. Now, that's important because the cloud represents the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament, Shekinah, represents this dazzling glory of God that is so blinding that when Moses goes into the tabernacle later and comes out, the people say, Moses, cover your face. We, we, you're blinding us. He'd been in God's presence. When a, when a pillar of fire at night which was also, a, it says, a cloud in the daytime, but it was not like one of our rain clouds, okay? It was like this dazzling, powerful light cloud that directed them. In the day and at night, it was a pillar of fire, and it represented the presence of God, the Shekinah, the presence, the glory of God. And Moses goes up the mountain, and, and God stands there in this cloud with him. God is there with Moses, but he's in this cloud. I mean, God, Moses doesn't see his face, but God is there. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, their children, for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Um, you see the grace of God, that the grace of God, even with the punishment, is much greater and it's, a, and it's a bounding glory. And he passes in front of Moses. And Moses is there with God. And he, and he bows down to the God and, 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 said, uh, and worships God and, and prays with, with God. And likewise, Elijah, after he had had that encounter with Ahab and then the story of Jezebel who threatened him, and all of a sudden Ahab lost his, his confidence in God and, his, and, 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 this, and, and ran and ran for his life. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we have Elijah also in the same situation where we looked at this last fall as well, a year ago, where, where he's on the mountain with God. He's, he's, he's at Mount Horeb in Israel. And God comes to him and says, what are you, been, what are you doing here, Elijah? And, he, and he's upset and he's sad because he'd been faithful and yet he was being challenged by the queen and, and he was scared and he ran for his life. And verse 11, the Lord, the Lord said, Go out on the stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. God's about to meet you, Elijah. Go out there and stand there. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a whoosh, sound of nothing. 
a, a, gentle, a gentle breath, a gentle wind. And Elijah heard it, and he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave, and a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And God met him. And, and the fact that Elijah pulls his coat over his face to hide his, to hide his eyes indicates that he was in the, this, this wind, this breath, was connected with this presence of God. It had to have been the Shekinah presence of God that was so overpowering that he, co that he covered his, his face because he couldn't look at it. And he went out there and he met with God. Both of these men, Moses and Elijah, had met God on the mountain and were aware of his dazzling presence. And here in Mark chapter 9, these two men are there with Jesus on the mountain and they're talking together. They're talking together. We don't know what they spoke about. We have no indication of the conversation. And as the story goes on, you'll notice, of course, that, that Peter in verse 5 blurts out, and, and I mean, and, and we're told afterward he said this because he was terrified and didn't know what to say. What do you say to Moses and Elijah and Jesus? And, and you, have to, you have to think, too, where did he rank these three? I mean, these were important men, Moses and Elijah. And, and, and he looks and he, and, he, and he blurts out and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Teacher, it's good for us. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the word here for shelter in the Hebrew is the word, it could be the word for tabernacle, and he could have in mind the tabernacle of the Old Testament where people came and met God. Or it's also the word for tent or booth, and it could represent the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, which was very important in Israel's history, the, the, the Feast of the Ingathering. Uh, the word could go for either one of those. And we don't know for sure. What, what did Peter have in mind? What was he thinking about? Why would he, why would he want to put up tents for them? Why would you put up a tent? Why would you put up a tent? You, you put up a tent because you're going to stay in it. You go camping, right? You, you put up a tent, and you, you put up that tent because you're going to sleep, you're going you're to stay in that tent. And so there's an indication here that, that Peter thought there was maybe something semi-permanent here. There was something that needed to be, to be established, and that Peter wasn't maybe planning on just leaving and going back down the mountain, but this was something spectacular, Moses and Elijah, because the Old Testament tells us that Elijah was going to come to herald and announce and bring and prepare Israel for the Messiah. Even today at every Passover, as you probably you may, may be aware, 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 well aware of. Can't stand on my head, but I can get those words out. <laughs> that, that at the table, there's an empty seat, and it's the Elijah seat. Because it just might be that Elijah might choose your house. He might choose your house to come and sit down and announce the Messiah and prepare Israel for the Messiah's coming. It happens even to this day. And they knew that. And, and so he, he's going to build a tabernacle. He's going to build a booth. And, and Elijah is here. And Moses, the one who brought Israel out of slavery the first, they're here. So something spectacular is going to happen. They are on the eve. I'm, I'm thinking that Peter is thinking that they are on the eve. They are on the cusp of this kingdom. Why else would those two men be there? Why else would the cloud be there? Why else would God be there? Why else would Jesus all of a sudden change when he just got done telling them that some of you will not, that, 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 that if, if you are faithful, he will acknowledge you when he comes in his glory. And if you are not, you will be condemned when he comes in his glory. I think Peter has this in mind that it's, it's, it's time. They're here. Let's build some tabernacles. They're afraid. 
And then it says, a cloud appeared, the Shekinah cloud of God, the presence of God Almighty, the Shekinah glory, I believe, appeared and enveloped them so now they, they couldn't see. They were, they were, I'm sure they did what Elijah did. I'm sure they had to cover their eyes because they were standing in the very presence of God and they hear a voice from heaven. And you notice the voice doesn't say anything about, it doesn't talk to Moses, it doesn't talk to Elijah. You know, there are good questions. How did, how did Peter know that was Moses and Elijah, by the way? He never met them. Would you recognize Moses if you saw him? You might have, you know, Charlton Heston or something in your mind, maybe. <laughs> must have been from the conversation. It must have been from the conversation, you know. Um, whatever, that, that Peter recognizes Moses and Elijah. And a cloud envelops them and covers them. And all of a sudden, but the voice speaks about Jesus and singles him out from the three and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And the significance of that phrase would go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses told the people before he died and he gives the second reading of the law, he says, God is going to send you a prophet like me, but it's the prophet who is going to come, the prophet, and you should listen to his words. And those, that, that passage from Deuteronomy 18 is understood by Israel to be messianic, about the coming Messiah. And says you should listen to his words. And the voice from heaven says, listen to his words. This would not be lost on Peter, James, and John. They are on the cusp of something spectacular. And suddenly, they looked around and they were all gone. And there was Peter, James, John, and Jesus in their regular old Middle Eastern Palestinian clothes, dirty from the dust, walking around. It's a dusty area. Some of you have been to the Middle East. Some of you have been to Israel. You know what the Middle East is like. And, and it was just them in their regular old clothes again. Just like that. It was all gone. It was all over. The kingdom didn't come. God didn't come from heaven. Israel's enemies weren't defeated. The Romans weren't kicked out. It's all over. And they go down the mountain. And they go down the mountain. And in verse 9, as they're going down the mountain, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody. They just saw Moses and Elijah. They just saw Jesus glorified. They just heard the voice of God. You don't hear the voice of God every day. Peter never heard the voice of God before. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we've seen this throughout the book of Mark, haven't we? Don't tell anybody. But then he tells a man healed of the demons in, in, in the Gadarene area, go out and tell everybody. And I ask you to think about that. Why? Why? Next week, we're going to answer that question, okay? So you have to come back next week, set your clocks, spring. Oh, I always thought it was spring ahead. All right, spring ahead, fall back, okay? Set your clock forward an hour. You have no excuse in this digital age. Your computers and your iPads and your surfaces and your everything else will change it for you, so you have no excuse. Be here next week. We're going to answer this question, Okay? Well, at least four of you are going to be here. That's good. I'll be here with those four of you. <laughs> okay, we'll meet in the upper lounge next week. All right, so listen. So, so they come down the mountain. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Uh, uh, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
In verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves. They did it. Peter, James, and John didn't tell anybody. They didn't go back and tell the other nine, hey, guess what we just saw? They kept it to themselves. But they did ask Jesus, why, verse 11, why do the teachers say that Elijah must come first? Peter's confused here. Because, and John and James, because if Elijah did come and they saw him, and the Old Testament says, behold, in Malachi 3 and 4, that, that I'm going to send Elijah and he's going to herald the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's going to come before the Messiah. And every Jew was anticipating, as they are still today, a, a religious Jew, that Elijah's going to come and herald the kingdom. Elijah came. They saw Elijah. He even came with Moses. The kingdom didn't come. And Jesus and Peter and John and James said, well, why does the Bible say Elijah is confusing here? It's out of order. What's going on? And look at Jesus' response. No, he said Elijah does come. And he restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Now see, they didn't catch that. That wasn't a common, typical teaching in rabbinic Judaism as it is isn't today either. Nobody caught that in the Old Testament. There were just a few writings around the first century that, of Jewish rabbis that anticipated this. This idea that the Messiah would come, but he must suffer and die. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our iniquities. He was stricken for our iniquities. He was smashed. He was struck by God for our sins. He has healed our sins. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. You know, it's there in Isaiah 53, but they didn't see that. And Jesus reminds him, doesn't the Bible say that first that the Messiah, the Son of Man, must come and be rejected and suffer? But I tell you, verse 13, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. See, it's out of order. And they have a good question here. Jesus, Elijah was here, we saw him, now he's gone. What's going on here? And Jesus reminds them. Now remember, this Gospel of Mark was written after the story was all finished. And the earliest Christian believers that had their hands on this Gospel, along with the others, it made sense then. But it doesn't make real good sense right now in this particular setting because they have no idea, they cannot fathom that Jesus is actually going to be killed. How could this man who was changed into dazzling appearance, his divine appearance, certainly someone who has changed and who has that divinity, that power about him, could never be killed by humans. They, they just don't, they don't understand it, and you wouldn't understand it either. They come down from that mountain. Uh, you talk about a mountaintop experience. You had some mountaintop experiences in your life? You look back over your life, there have been some experiences that, that were really epical in your life, that were epics, that maybe were times where you experienced even the presence of God in, a, in just a, an amazing way. It doesn't happen every day, 24 hours a day, you know, 24-7, but there have been times in your life, have there been those times in your life where beforehand you thought, how would I ever deal with this when it, if that were to happen to me? How could I deal with that? And it happens. And you find God's peace that you could never have explained ahead of time. Uh, other times in your life where, where, where God is so real to you. It's, a, it's like a mountaintop experience. Maybe, maybe you've been to a conference or somewhere with, uh, with other believers and you've had just such a wonderful, joyous, 
celebration and, and, and harmony and unity. You know, um, throughout my life, I can think back on the times that were these epical events. They come down from that mountain. Peter wanted to stay there. He wanted to build three tents because he wanted to camp out for a while. I think he wanted to camp out until this kingdom came and they were right dead center in the middle of it. But it was gone. And they have to go down. And you can read the rest of this chapter. You looked at it in Sunday school this morning. You read this chapter and you'll find out they come, down the, they come down the mountain and they look in the distance and there's a bunch of people around the other nine disciples and they're arguing, you know, and they're, they're, they're talking with their hands and they're yelling and they're arguing and they're going back and forth and something's going on. And all of a sudden somebody looks, hey, there's Jesus. And they come running after Jesus and they come, and they come tearing to him. And they, and they come to him, and, and, and Jesus says, what are you arguing about? What, in verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? And somebody explains in verse 17, I brought my son who's possessed of a spirit that has robbed him. It's a demonic spirit. And he explains what this, what this boy is going through. And he said, we came to your disciples, and, 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 nothing, and they couldn't do anything about it. We thought they could heal him. They thought they could do something, and no one can do anything. And this boy is there in this, in this demonic fashion, and they look at him, and look what Jesus says, verse 19. Oh, unbelieving generation. He is, is sighs in his, in his heart. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. As the story unfolds, Jesus heals this boy. This is that famous, well-known line in the Bible where, where Jesus says to the man, you know, everything's possible if you believe. And, and in verse 24, the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy. And when his disciples ask him, why couldn't we do that? We tried. Why couldn't we do that? And Jesus says, this, this can only come out by prayer at the, end of the, at the end of the story. Why is the story the transfiguration there? What's it, what's it there for? Everything went back to normal. Everything carried on. What is it there for? What does it mean to the disciples? For Peter, James, and John. And as they did have the opportunity to tell this story later, obviously this is a first-person account here in Mark. Peter probably gave this story to Mark. Peter was there. Mark worked with Peter as a disciple of Peter's. And this story for the disciples was an encouragement. It was an encouragement that yes, Jesus is going to appear. He is going to come back. And when the Bible says that he is going to come back in his power and his glory and the world will see him, it's true. We got a glimpse of it. And it was an encouragement to them because they are going to face persecution. And, and Acts, as, we, as you read in the book of Acts, and we find out in just a kind of a one-line thing, that, that the Apostle James was the first to be martyred, to be slaughtered for his faith by the Herod's family. This James. Peter is crucified. As church history has it, he was crucified upside down, but he was crucified for his faith. John outlived all of them, but he died as a prisoner on Patmos and suffered also for his faith. All three of these men. And this story would encourage them and would encourage the early believers that Jesus is coming back. He is powerful. He is going to overcome. 
What about Jesus? Was the story of, of the transfiguration, did this, was this something important to Jesus? Jesus is on his way to the cross at Calvary where he is going to suffer and die. And he gets us just a brief respite from this life on earth where for those few moments he is in his glorified, his, his, his metamorphosis, his dazzling appearance and he is there with Elijah and Elijah. He's, he's basically in heaven, if you will, heaven on earth. And, and, and was this a, a time for Jesus for, for encouragement? What did Moses and Elijah say to him? Was it a time for encouragement, a time for strength, a time for, for, for just a respite from, from everything that's been going on and, 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 and all the, pre and the sin and the things he's dealing with with people and all the disbelief? And he goes back down that mountain. What's in it for you and me? I, I love this, the way that this story explains this, that Jesus comes down and he looks at these people and he just sighs and says, how long am I going to be with you? And he doesn't turn around and say, you guys, deal with it. You know, I'm going back. Give me a break. But he, he embraces it. He embraces it. He welcomes them. He talks to the man. He doesn't yell at his disciples. He just explains them, you know, this, you guys, this is going to, you have to pray about this. You have to pray about these things. It takes a lot of prayer. And he heals the boy. And he brings health and life and wholeness to this family. And you know, it's like our lives. God, God gives us those respites. God every so often gives us that, that glimpse. Think back over your life. Don't compare it to somebody else's. Think back over your life. Has God ever given you a, a glimpse that you take with you? The reality of it, of eternity. But God doesn't keep you there. Because that's not where we live our lives. We live our lives down here. Ministry happens. And when I talk about ministry, I'm not talking about pastoral ministry. That's part of it. I'm talking about our ministry, your ministry, your service to God, your life for God, your walk with the Lord. It happens down here. And it's messy. And it's discouraging. And sometimes it's tiring. And sometimes you like to just say, deal with it and go back up the mountain. But God's called you here. And God has placed you here. You can't live on the mountaintop. But you can go back. And I think it's important that for each of us that we realize that we, we need time with God. You know, you're, you're here today. God bless you, really. I'm, you know, you're here today. You could be anywhere. You've brought your children today. And parents, you, you're, you're making a statement to your children that, that spiritual things are important in our family. You, you, that's important. Uh, I know throughout my years in the ministries, I've talked with people. The one thing I've encountered over and over again, people who've been hurt from being here. Not, not here, but sometimes maybe here. Hurt from church. But we're here. We're here. Because it's important to just take these few minutes out of our week to look into God's Word, to sing those songs, 
to read those scriptures, to have a little respite and refreshment. And it's good for you to get away. It's good for you to get away each day. It, it might be five minutes in God's word and in prayer with God and, 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 and to touch that divine, to, to touch that place where, where you are reminded of eternity and you're reminded of how good God is, how good, how much he loves you. I look back over my life and I, and, and, and I tell you, why has God been so good to me? I don't deserve it. No one knows it better than me. But God loves us. And we need to touch that place, friends. We need to make a little space in our lives, especially today. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been that, in that place in your life and you even denied it. Maybe you've, you look back and say, yeah, I, there was a time in my life where God really touched me with eternity. And maybe at the time you, you deny it. Go back. Go back. You serve a God of new beginnings. Go back and come down and join us in the valley where life takes place. And give God thanks that for whatever reason, in his grace and mercy, he has given you and me the privilege of being his hands and his voice and his feet where life takes place. That's why we're here. We serve a good God. And I don't want anybody to leave this place today with, if anything else, with anything else, if you remember anything else, please remember, God loves you. God loves you and invites you to share his love by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and acknowledging to God that you need salvation, that you are a sinner. Christ died for your sins and offers you forgiveness for sins and eternal life and peace with God because he loves you. You know, we're going to close our service. You know, I want our worship team to come up. And Ellen, can you do me a favor? Don't say no, right? Okay. Oh, thanks. Good. Okay. You know that song, I Love You, Lord? Yeah. Can we sing that one more time and then sing your closing song? Sure. And I don't know if I'm going to throw Cliff off back there with the slides. But can you put out, hey, man, you're good, Cliff. You are good, Cliff, Remberg. And can we sing this a cappella? Can you stand? And uh, can one of you guys give us a, maybe Jonah give us a lead-in voice there or something. Let's sing this a cappella. And then let's sing our closing song, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do love you today. We may not always act like it, and we sometimes forget. But we have just paused today, God, to tell you that we do love you. But we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, I just pray if there be a person here today that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, does not feel you love them, that you would open their heart. And if your Holy Spirit would open their heart to just understand how much you do care, how much you do love, and that they would open their heart to you and receive Christ today. And Lord, as we leave this place today and we go back in the valley, 
we go with you. We don't know what awaits us this week, that we go with confidence and joy in our hearts because we have the privilege of walking beside you. In Christ's name, we ask these things and give you all the honor and glory. And all God's people can say it together. Amen. Amen.